on the book of Romans as we continue our journey through this fascinating text and uh, is extraordinary. This is the part, the part we're talking about today is the part I like to preach about the least. I have avoided this little section of Romans for most of my adult life. I like, I like all up until chapter 8. And then I just skip right ahead to chapter 12. <laughs> Chapters 9, 10, 11, I just have never really understood. And so I committed myself in the last couple of weeks to really digging in and understanding better what Paul's trying to do with these three chapters. And it occurred to me just how important and relevant these three chapters are for our lives today. And so uh, we're going to uh, be in Romans chapter 9 in just a minute if you want to get your Bibles out or your study guides. Uh, that you were given when you came in. Those have all three scriptures I'm reading today on them as well. You can get those out and just get ready. Who was here last week? How many of you? No shame. I'm just curious. So I, I anticipate this. Like I think about half our congregation is here on any given Sunday, especially during college football season. <laughs> but last week, it seems like ages ago because I was so healthy and strong last week. And I stood up here and I talked about how whenever I'm sick, I become this pathetic little shadow of myself and uh, Giovanna has to put up with me even though I'm the worst patient ever when I'm sick because she's my wife and she promised to love me in sickness and in health and that's our covenant. That's what covenant means and, and I joked about it like, you know, but I never get sick, I said. And then guess what happened? On Monday, by Monday night, I had the flu. Straight up, full-blown, messed up flu. Not like, I'm I'm a little achy. Not like that. Like the whole thing. Do I need to describe? Okay, I'll stop. It was gross and painful and awful. And Tuesday night, I was supposed to go to Lafayette, Louisiana and speak at this event for 200 men. And they'd been promoting it for months, like I'm some kind of celebrity or something. And I'm not, and little do they know, like, I was telling them the whole time, lower your expectations. And, and they just kept, like, putting out on Facebook, Eric Hoffman's coming, and it was a big deal, and I was nervous, and I'd written my talk, and I'd get them all these slides, and I had all my stuff ready. And, and Tuesday morning, I called them, and I was like, guys, <laughs> guys, you're going to have to pray, because I'm really, really sick. And they got to praying. They got to praying, and uh, by Tuesday at noon, uh, I was wishing for death. I wanted to die, and I wanted nothing more than to die. I knew I was not going to be able to drive myself to Louisiana. All I wanted to do was curl up and sleep and then throw up and then curl up and then sleep and then throw up, and that, that was my cycle. That was all I was doing. I hadn't eaten in 24 hours. I was just drinking and then, and you know what, and then drinking again. And so I was like, Gio, uh, baby, I need you here. I need you to, I'm going to need you to drive me to Lafayette, Louisiana. And so she agreed. She dropped everything she had to do, which was a lot. She went to the school to pull the kids out of school, which is a big deal at my school, my kids' school, because apparently they get paid more <laughs> when you keep your kids there all day. And you have to give like seven different kinds of evidence that they're yours before they let you take the kids home. <laughs> and she went to get them early. We hit the road for Lafayette. We got about an hour out of town. Every 15 minutes, I was throwing up again in the passenger seat of the car. The kids were in the back with their iPads going, Ugh! It's the first time I've ever seen them distracted from their iPads. And about an hour out, I was like, baby, 
I just can't do this. I can't do this. We're going to have to call them. And so I called them and uh, called the guys, and, and I was like, guys, I'm so sorry. I just, bleh, I just can't. I can't make it. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I tried. And, they, and their first response was, oh, man, we've been praying for God to heal you in Jesus' name. And then I said, without even thinking, I said, in my misery, in my self-absorbed, miserable existence, I said, after they said, we've been praying for you in Jesus' name to heal you, I said, well, it didn't work. <laughs> well, it didn't work. Like, that's not my finest hour as a pastor. <laughs> as a pastor. Should have prayed harder. It didn't work. And uh, that's just how I felt. I felt like it didn't work. And I was, I was insecure by that time. I was like, I, was, I, I had become patient Eric, which is not the same as Eric. Like, you need to understand this. I'm not a good person when I'm sick. And so there was a time on that trip where I actually turned on Giovanna, and I was like, why are you taking me to Louisiana? And she was like, you just asked me to, but it didn't matter. Reality doesn't matter when patient Eric comes. You know, like, and so... <laughs> and y'all, some the women here are like, yeah, I totally get it. Um, and so uh, I think, though, uh, I think that reveals something about me. I, I think um, two things. First of all, I was so insecure in part because, <laughs> this is true, the uh, topic they were bringing me to Lafayette to speak on, and this is no joke, the topic was how to be a real man. <laughs> and there I was. And so it just compounded my insecurities. <laughs> and, uh, and, and secondly, I think I realized in the aftermath of that, that my knee-jerk reaction to his comment about their prayers revealed a lot. I think I showed my, my true hand and my deepest self about what I really believe prayer is. And I think it's true for most of us. I don't think I'm alone in this. I think we think prayer works when we tell God what to do and he does it exactly on our timeline and according to our exact specifications. When he does that, when we say jump, he says how high, and then he jumps. That's prayer working. When we ask for stuff and it doesn't happen, that's prayer not working. And a lot of us have been brought up to believe that that's how the relationship with God is supposed to work, right? I remember, for example, uh, a guy who used to be a really famous Christian preacher, and now he's a really famous atheist Chaplain, that's a thing, it is, he is that. And his name is Bart. He was the first guest on the Maybe God podcast, which seems like years ago, but that was just January. <laughs> that was January. And um, <clears throat> I asked him, I said, what turned you from being a really committed Christian evangelical preacher in the urban core of the city where you live to being a really outspoken atheist? And he said, Eric, 10,000 unanswered prayers. 10,000 unanswered prayers. 10,000 times he told God what to do and God didn't do it. And I think what he's speaking to there is beyond just him. I think it's all of us and the culture in which we live, which is more than any other culture that's ever been about me first. It revolves around me. I interpret the world through the lens of me. And you need to know that this isn't how the world has always been. For most of the world's history, it's been about we. <laughs> as a family or as a tribe or as a country, but not me. But now it's me. Now, 
The self is the center of the universe, and everyone has their own universe, and you're the center of it. And so the question then becomes, if God doesn't care enough about me to listen to what I say and do what I tell him to do, then what good is God? What's the purpose of giving him all my time and my treasure, my sacrifices, my money, my words, my devotion? I can do other stuff that's better for me. I got other things to do. And if God's not going to play along with my plans for me, then what good is he? I can walk. And a lot of people walk because they've been told their whole life. Some of you have been told your whole life that God is there to be at your beck and call. He's like Santa Claus on speed. Eternal. Santa Claus on speed, on steroids, right? Like he just is there to take care of you. And then he doesn't, as you think he should, according to your exact specifications. And then what? A lot of times we walk. And if you have this attitude about God, if this is how you think about prayer, I think it is a result of a fundamental miscommunication. It is a fundamental misunderstanding about what God promised you in the, fir in the first place. If anybody ever told you that God promised to make you happy, to answer all your prayers, to your exact specifications, to make you comfortable, if you've gotten that message, then you've been lied to. God never made that promise. He's made promises. And the promises that he's made, he's kept and will keep. But fulfilling all of your whims and wishes is not one of those promises. I think a lot of us think that way about God. We read verses like Matthew 7, 7, where Jesus is like, Ask and ye shall. Seek and ye shall. Knock and the door shall. Y'all know that one. You don't know any of the Bible verses. You know that one. Because that's our favorite one. Anything? I just ask for anything and it's mine. Not even just three wishes, anything. That's quite a genie we have in this God. And that's how we interpret verses like that. But listen, we think God is at our beck and call, but he never promised to be. He never promised to be your errand boy doing what you tell him to do, giving what you tell him that you want. He promises you things, but his promises for you, if you choose to see them for what they are, are so much bigger than your wishes and your whims and so much better for you than the little things you ask for, as urgent and pressing as those things may seem in a moment. The real promise of God is so much better and broader than our little finite minds can understand. So, why that matters, where that ties in today, is that Paul is writing this section of Romans to address misunderstood promises. Absolutely misunderstood promises. And he's writing primarily about his Jewish brothers and sisters, who were the religious establishment in his world. So, instead of reading it like it's them, if you've been raised in a Christian world and you're kind of a Christian, read it like it's you and you might find some truth in this today. So Romans chapter 9 is where we'll start in just a second. The promise had been misunderstood. All right? So this is what the deal was. The Jewish people believed they were special. Anybody ever tell you you're special? <laughs> 
I don't mean in the kind of semi-insulty kind of way that people say it sometimes. <laughs> but like your mom, your grandma, or somebody said, you're such a special person. Well, uh, that's what these uh, Paul's people have been told. That they're special. That God thinks they're special. And that God has made them special promises to take special care of them. And God will always take special care of them over and above the way he takes care of other people and other places who belong to other religions and nations. And so they had come to believe in Paul's day that it was God's job to take care of them. Because in response to his promise, what had they done? They had become religious. They had given up a lot of normal life. They didn't go to the games on Saturdays. They took Sabbath on Saturdays. They had to lay low. They didn't work. They didn't do anything. No entertainment because the law said so. They couldn't eat bacon. How many of you would give up bacon for God? They give up bacon for God for like a thousand years. And by the time Paul's writing, it's like they've developed a sense of debt. But instead of them being in debt because of their sin, God is in their debt. God owes them something. And now everything's changed because of Jesus. The promises have shifted and some of us have been left out and some of them have been let in. It's not fair because God owes us. That was the mentality then. And I would challenge you to see how that may be your mentality today. All right. Matthew, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. What then shall we say, Paul writes, is God unjust? Is God unfair? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you? Who are you? A human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Did not the potter have the right? To make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Talking about the Gentiles there. Whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the the Gentiles. All right. So, if I could sum all of that up, I could have saved us a lot of time this morning. I could sum it up in four words, that whole passage. You know what they are? You are not, anybody want to guess? Special, yeah. You're not special, that's true. I should have seen that coming. Yeah, you're not special. You're not. You're only as special as everybody else. <laughs> Let that sink in a second. Uh, <laughs> you're not God. You're not God. 
So stop thinking of yourself like you are and stop talking to God like he's your equal. Because he's not. You're not God and you may never in this life understand his ways. You may never understand why things are the way that they are. Paul is saying, look, God has a plan. He's always had a plan. He's not changing his plan because he's freaked out about the last plan not working. He's got a plan. Even now, stop freaking out. Stop getting your axle, get wrapped around the axle of certain questions, breaking up churches over certain questions, breaking up families over certain questions, losing Facebook friends because of certain questions. You think Gandhi's in hell or heaven? Who knows? You don't know. If anybody answers that question with any certainty, anything other than, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know, they're a fool because you don't know. You don't know, stop acting like you know. And I'm talking mostly to Christians right now, but also to smarter than thou atheists out there who think they know everything. We know nothing, nothing. Even though we're so smart compared to where we were a thousand years ago, we know so much now. Our satellites and our Mars rovers and our, our telescopes, we've seen the whole universe. We've seen less than 1% of the observable universe with all our technology. Less than 1% with pictures. And that's just the observable universe. The observable universe just makes up 4% of the whole universe. We've seen 1% of 4%. The rest of it is a bunch of stuff we don't understand. Dark matter, dark energy, black holes, what? It's like written in a language we don't speak. Even if we could see it or perceive it, we couldn't understand it. We just know it's there because we know it does stuff. Weird stuff. But we don't know it. We don't know squats. We know nothing. Look at your neighbor and says, you know nothing. Just say it. Say it and mean it. You know nothing. I promise I'm not drunk. I'm just angry a little. It's all that Tamiflu. I just get aggravated, y'all, because <laughs> we act like we're so smart, like we have a license to tell God what to do, like we have a license to get mad at God when he doesn't do what we want him to do, as if he's not up there with a plan. He's got the whole world in his hands, and the world is just a tiny fragment of it. He's got all the universe in his hands, the whole universe, of which we've seen 1% of 4%. The whole universe is a Lego set to him. And we get mad. Why didn't you do what I said? <laughs> Can you imagine? It'd be like, if you ever have kids, uh, you got kids and they're so sweet when they're babies and then they have that little two-year-old thing, but it's just because they're just aggravated. And then, and then they grow an attitude about four. And anywhere you drive with a kid who's four <laughs> is wrong. They criticize. Daddy, are you lost again? Daddy, do you even know where you're going? You're four. People ask you how old you are. You still put up three fingers like an idiot. 
Do I know where I'm going? Can't even spell Chicago or I'm driving us there. And then I get lost and even more aggravated. But I know more than they do. You know what I mean? Sometimes I wonder if, if, if it would be like, like that to God. It's funny for a while and then it just gets insulting. But the distance between my four-year-old and me, it's nothing compared to the distance between me and God. You know what I mean? It's not an exact analogy. A more apt analogy would be like if my puppy, Opal, was in the back with her cute little head out the window. And then she said, Daddy, are we lost? Like, that would be an apt analogy. You know what I mean? I'm not calling you a dog, really, kind of. I guess I am. But I didn't think that one through because I didn't script that one. That one just came to me. So, <laughs> uh, I wonder if that's what it's like for God sometimes with us telling him what to do, telling him how high to jump. God, do you even know how fast my head is spinning right now, God? I had a rough night last night, God. Do you even know? And he's like spinning the planets on his fingers up there. Like, yeah, I know, I know. And this is Pluto, and it's a planet, by the way. You know, like, he's like, he got, he's got it all. He knows it all. He knows all the things. You know a few things. He knows all the things. Everything that's happening in the universe, from the cellular and the subcellular levels to the asteroids and, and galaxies we will never see. He's got it all there. We tell our kids, he knows every hair on your head. And that's sweet and that's true. The Bible says it. But he also knows how to make hair. He makes hair. Can you do that? He makes hair. And then if you get arrogant, men, he makes it fall out to keep you humble. <laughs> he knows things. Bigger than us and smarter than us. We should not pretend as though we're as equal. We cannot comprehend his ways. And this is not meant to insult you. This is actually meant to let you off the hook. You don't need to be God's equal. You can't comprehend his ways. You were never meant to. But if he's God, he has a way. And if he's God... You can trust it. Even if you can't comprehend it, you can trust it. Yes? Yeah. All right. Let's move ahead to the next reading. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 9. This is a pretty short little teaching I wanted to do. I didn't want to just skip chapter 10. This is important. Chapter 10 starts this way. Brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, about his Jewish brothers and sisters. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question, 
Paul's addressing here is a question of God's integrity. God made this promise to all the Jewish people back in the days of Abraham to make of them a great nation and God would take care of them and he would be their people and they would be his God. And now, because of Jesus, it's all messed up. Now we've got Gentiles who never even followed the law, Gentiles to whom God is not even in debt, Gentiles who never gave up bacon. Now they're just as welcome as we are, and it's not fair. Does God keep his promises or not? And if so, then why aren't all the Jewish people included in this promise anymore? Paul's response, very simple. They are. Or they can be. They always have been. Because again, it's not like God's up there with a piece of furniture from Ikea going, how does this all work? Maybe we should try this. Let's try this. No, let's, no, that's us. That's me. God's up there with one plan. Listen, he didn't shift gears after Malachi and said, let's try something new with Matthew. That's not how it worked. The law is Christ. The prophets are Christ. The entire Hebrew Bible is Christ. Christ was there at creation. All things were made through him and by him. He was there. And he's all over the Old Testament. And he comes to the earth as the fulfillment of all of that. Why aren't they a part of the promise? They always have been. They got dibs. It's still theirs if they want it. And everyone is welcome because it's not about our works. This is what he says. He says, they chose their own righteousness, which is easy to do. This isn't religious speak. This happens every day. This is what happens when you choose religion over gospel. That's right. So religion is your works. When you choose religion, the good thing about it for you is that you're in the driver's seat. You know exactly where you stand. You know what you've accomplished. You know what you've done wrong. You know how it all evens out like a balance sheet. You just want to keep that balance sheet balanced. Like, don't let the sin get over the works, you know. And you don't want to do too much works, you know. The preacher will get carried away. Like, just even it out, you know. You're in control. You know what you need to sacrifice. You know how many times you need to go to church. Paul says, listen, it is not about your righteousness. It doesn't matter how good you've been. He says very clearly, you want to be saved, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. Period. Think about what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if you want to be saved, clean up your act. He doesn't say if you want to be saved, be a better person. Say better things. Not so many four-letter words. You want to be saved, then you need to act saved. You want to be saved. Believe the promise of God. The true and lasting promise of God of salvation for all who want it by the grace of Jesus. All right. So he invites us off this hamster wheel we talk about a lot, the hamster wheel of self-righteousness and just to belief. All right, Romans 11. Here we go. This is, Paul's going to bring us home here, and this is the most important part of uh, the teaching this morning. Romans 11, verses 11 through 23, and then verse 32. 
Again, I ask, did they stumble, did the Jewish people stumble, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So he's still hoping for their full inclusion one day in the promise of God. I'm talking to you Gentiles now. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save uh, some of them. Arouse them to envy and save some of them. Got it? Okay. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. But if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, so he's talking about the Jews that didn't believe in Jesus, were broken off from the family tree of God, and you, a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in, you who were lost out there and alone, far from God, were grafted into the family tree of God by no doing of your own, just the grace of God, now sharing in the nourishment, set, nourishing sap from the olive root, do you con- not consider yourself, I'm sorry, he says, this is important, this is a warning for us, for us, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches, the ones that were cut off and are far from God now. If you do, consider this, Christians, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in. I'm special. I matter. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. So don't be arrogant. But tremble. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you. Provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise... If you slip into judgment and hatred of others, he's saying, otherwise you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they'll be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them back in. And then he says, this is the culmination of this part of the teaching. He says, for God has bound everyone over to their own disobedience so that, read this with me, with your loudest voice, so that he may have mercy on them all. That's the point. That's the plan. It's not that God creates some people just to be thrown away into the fire heap. No. He creates people and gives us over to our own temptations and our own free will so that he can show mercy to us all if we will have it. Now listen, this this is heartwarming teaching. And it's kind of getting back into the, the comfort me God kind of stuff. And I want to avoid that because I have a very real concern about where we stand today, and I, this is deep in my heart, and I've wanted to say this for a while. <sighs> so here we go. This is important to me because I'm, I worry about what we're teaching our kids in established, denominational, mainline, mainstream, moderate, big steeple, proper churches. And I think our kids, in fact, most of us from baby boomers on down, raised in and around these churches have been led to believe all about Uh, the love of God, how important it is to love God. And we've learned nothing at all our whole lives about the fear of God 
It's been all love and kindness and niceness, and God will love you as you are. You never have to change. He's your soft place to land after a rough Saturday night. Just come back next Sunday just as you are. You never have to do anything. It's just love. We've got nothing, nothing about the sternness of God. Listen, God is love, and it's good that you understand that. But only if you understand that without misunderstanding his sternness and his wrath and how his heart breaks when we choose sin over him again and again. Listen, if you've learned only and all about the love of God and you've learned nothing about the fear of God, I need you to know that the slippery slope that puts you on is one of treating God like a servant to you, like your boyfriend, like your bestie, like your buddy, like your side piece, like your dog, like your pet. Like he's, he exists to fulfill your wants. And if he sits, when you say sit, you'll give him a treat and call it an offering. And then if he rolls over and if he's a good boy, that's what happens when you're all love and no wrath. <clears throat> When you're all kindness and no sternness, God is not, <clears throat> he is not your bestie. He is not your pet. He is not your dog. He will not be mocked by the likes of you and me. Listen and receive this as I mean it from my heart. He is entirely other than us. He is entirely holy. He is entirely different. He is higher than us. He is a fearsome God. And I'm not saying he's the kind of fearsome that should send you running away. I'm just saying when you're in the presence of the God who holds the universe like a Lego set, you should tremble a little bit. Just a little. Even though you've got daily bread for days stored up in your house, tremble in the presence of the one true God. Whenever you cease to tremble, you no longer worship him. And worship is the only language of love that makes sense. In this relationship, do not boil him down to your equal, for he is not. And this is not bad news. It doesn't mean you're going to hell because he's angry. All it means is that he is God and you are not. So stop telling him what to do and love him. Fear him and worship him and trust him and his plan and his promise for your life. We face the constant temptation of self-sufficiency. I'm smart enough to make my own decisions. I'm rich enough to pay my own bills. God, you can come along if you want. You know, like, you can be my co-pilot. I hate that bumper sticker. Don't make God your co-pilot. It means you're equals. God's not your co-pilot. God's your pilot, man. He's your maker. And you tremble in his presence if you love him. You fear him a little because he's so other and so holy. This is the place we should take in his presence. This is why worship really matters. Humble yourself and love him the God that he is.
promises are true. And they will never disappoint you. Although you may not understand them, they will come to pass. And he promises you salvation if you just trust and rest in him. Let's pray. God, we don't know all of your ways, but we thank you. For you are God and we are not. You truly have been kind with us. Sometimes you've been stern with us. But even in your sternness, there is grace. Even in our losses, there is glory. Even in our grief, there is a gift we had for a while and lost. But the gift itself wasn't ours to begin with. It was yours and you gave it freely. We take so much for granted, God. Free us from that sense of entitlement and self-centeredness. Set us free to take our proper place before you with fear and trembling. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.